0: Welcome to Waypoint, an Oklahoma human services podcast intended to inform, educate, and enhance collaboration and service to Oklahomans. I'm Comfort. And I'm
1: Casey, and we're on this journey with you together.
0: On today's episode, we're continuing our conversation with Dr. Deb Shropshire and Patrick Klein. Dr. Deb joined Child Welfare in 2014 and was named its director in 2019. Patrick Klein was named the Adult and Family Services Director in December 2017 and recently retired on August 1st, 2021, after an illustrious career of 31 years with OKDHS.
1: During COVID, a lot of our connections for all of us, whether it was someone we served in DHS, our own families. A lot of our connections just evaporated right in front of our faces. And for a lot of our families who don't have much margin there, anyhow, that could be such an incredible challenge. And we talk about this all the time about workloads increasing and, And um, you know, did we see more interactions in child welfare? Can you all talk about kind of what your experience was during COVID? And then also, Patrick, I want you to talk about embedded worker, because that's another place where you all intersect quite a bit.
2: Um, well, sure. I, you know, the COVID situation was unlike anything we'd ever seen uh, before. The you know we've had economic downturns that you know really impact our work in AFS. That obviously increases our workload numbers, that sort of thing. But the nature of this, because it was so sudden and it was so immediate, we usually have kind of a several months that, that those numbers build up and we're able to to work through them. And and so we have a little bit of a time factor that helps, but it was almost immediate. We went from about 500 applications averaging on, on a given day to uh, at one point uh, on a few days, we did almost five times that many. So that, that first month after um, the uh, national emergency was declared, I think uh, last year, uh, really between March and middle of April, end of April, the numbers were just off the chart. It was a mountain like unlike anything we'd ever seen. And and I'm real proud of our staff all across the board because it was really an all hands on deck situation and, and everybody stood up and said, yes, I'll, I'll help on that. And, that. and at the same time, you know, we're sending them home to telework. Thankfully, we already had a core of a group of people that already had that experience. We're able to help each other get up to speed pretty quick uh, because while, yes, it was the, it was the largest influx of, of applications and needs we'd ever had, it was also, you know, the finest, uh, best work our staff had ever done. They'd never been more productive uh, than in that time and, and even since. And so I really am just grateful for them and how they stepped up for their fellow Oklahomans. You know, and in the case of, of many of our AFS clients, we know that many of them were in what was considered essential jobs. You know, the persons that were stocking the shelves, that uh, were doing the checkout line at the grocery store, delivering groceries out to our car or to our home, you know, or doing the curbside delivery or that sort of thing. Or you know caring for uh, people in nursing homes, that sort of thing. When you talk about things you learn from COVID, I, I think that that's one of the things I hope that that uh, more of the public can can recognize and see is that you know the people we serve, um, yes, they they may be challenged economically, but they're a vital part of our community, and and uh, and and that respect they you know they've earned the respect that we give them, and we want to help them help themselves, and and to, To be able to make that that next climb to that next rung and and to be a success story and to have every one of our clients be a success story.
3: I think that's a really it's a really important point you're making because honestly there were a lot of professional people who were able to work from home go home not be out face to face during COVID. Many of the people we serve were in essential roles that did require that and I hope that as a society that we uh, Learn something about the importance of some of those roles uh, because we could not I mean how, how would we have dealt with the grocery store and the basic needs that people had without many folks who are making minimum wage maybe needing support from some of the programs that you've been talking about maybe struggling through it showing up continuing to show up in those um, workplaces was absolutely essential to help our state get through this.
2: Well, and, and then our staff, too. I mean, really, going home, you know, at the time, many of them not with – we didn't have, you know, state-issued laptops and AFS, and so we were just trying to find connections and that kind of thing until we could get laptops out there. We didn't have uh, – our workforce, for the most part, didn't have uh, state-issued cell phones either at that time. And so utilizing the old VPN systems, the Gemini, that kind of thing that seemed – Ancient now, even though that was just a little over a year ago, um, it, it is amazing what they were able to do, and that we were able to process those applications. We didn't end up with long lines of individuals, you know, standing outside of our offices and and, and needing assistance there. That, and I would say also the great work that was done well before the event occurred. You know, some of those forward thinking things about. Uh, OKDHS Live, which was actually put our application process online back in you know the mid-2000s to the late 2000s. And then also uh, imaging. I think the first county went to imaging, I think, in 2008. And we completed that in 2012. So we, we had a jump start. And we'd already been doing some telework with uh, a good portion of our staff. And so really what was, what was great about it is our staff, they tested these tools. They tested these developments. And and so, like from lessons learned uh, when we talk about it from COVID, I think, and this is one of the things I'm excited about with the director's commitment to technology, is to hopefully see some advancements where we can take some of these systems that are pretty long in the tooth. Um, you know, fax has been at, it's 25 years old. Um, you know, we still have a lot of things in the mainframe that are probably as old as me. And so, those are some of the things that I, you know, I think. Lessons learned on, hey, we've got we to make that a continuous commitment for us and always be looking down the line and be forward thinking about, you know, how do we go and we serve people where they're at? And, you know, for us, a, a good place of where they're at is, is in their home. And we, we saw that during this, this event. But we also know that we have a good number of families that, that that's just not an option for them. Maybe they're homeless they don't have connectivity, they don't know somebody with connectivity, that sort of thing. And so that kind of leads us to our next place of where do we go where our clients are. And this is what the whole embedded worker initiative is around, is finding those community partners that our customers are already accessing, that they're already going to for services, and saving them the trip to a DHS office. Um, You know, let's not add to that extra gas, that extra stop, that extra checklist, Let's go be where our customers are. That's why, you know, we have uh, embedded embedded workers at at strategic places, some places like uh, uh, Homeless Alliance, some places like, uh, you know, food banks, that sort of thing. And so that's one of the things I I think I'm really excited about uh, as an opportunity over, especially this next year, is to be able to grow that and to be able to uh, better support that with with some actual data and some uh, tools that would allow us to serve those families better uh, where those families are going and, and to not have them, you know, one of our, our famous posters on uh, OKDHS live, we called it the skip the trip poster. And and it was where a client could take their cell device or you know, cell phone or whatever, scan a QR code and it took them to live and they could apply. But it, it's kind of the, the uh, non-online version of that. We want our clients to skip the trip that you know, didn't have the option to apply online. We don't want them to have to make that extra trip to a DHS office. We wanna go where they're at. Um, that's a lot of the, the work that we're kinda of seeing now. We're, we're experimenting with different partners and, and partnerships where we've got people who are willing to step up and go out there and see, you know, is this, a, is this a good location? Are we serving both our clients interchangeably and, and is this a win-win? For both us and our partner and especially that family that we both jointly serve. And and a lot of this, I know, cuts across with child welfare. You know, there's some some extension to uh, specific locations that serve many child welfare families, but we also serve those same families and being able to find those locations and those partners that we can interact both from from your side, Dr. Deb, and child welfare and my side and AFS. I think that's just something that's gonna make our whole community stronger and our whole state stronger.
3: Yeah, I think one of the things we are wrestling through is how kind of our, what statute or federal regulation or state regulation um, instructs us to do versus what our communities need us to do and our families need us to do and trying to figure out how to operate within regulations to be able to do that. And so um, one of the things we've come to understand a lot over the last year, I think, has been that we've been siloed. And there's a reason why these things have been siloed, because we're all following a certain plan, a certain set of regulations and things we're responsible for. But those silos are not always a good fit with what people actually need. And so I'll, I'll give you an example, like child welfare historically doesn't get involved with families until there's an allegation of child abuse and neglect that rises to a level where we're concerned about safety. I would argue that there are many places where child welfare staff could be helping strengthen families so that they never get to the place where there's a true safety threat. But I have to sort of wiggle around within my responsibility area to make that fit and I think Patrick you have the same challenges. You're responsible for carrying out certain activities and sometimes and I hear you saying you're trying to figure out where do those activities fit well with a partner um, where we can kind of get some traction around helping a family. But I know we're wrestling as an agency and and I think our director is honestly wrestling at a federal level with the idea of can we create flexibilities that allow our programs to respond to what families and communities need rather than being driven by regulation as the driver of what human services delivery looks like. And so, it's a really interesting time because I think COVID has liberated a lot of the rules and regulations in our state and federally um and let because the federal government recognized we you know, we're in a crisis like none of us have ever seen. We just have to like give a lot of freedom to local governments to solve problems and in in our agency was positioned um, and I think our state was positioned to take advantage of that and say, well, let's try some things. And now the work over the next few years, I think, will be, to your point, looking at data to see what worked. And also advocating for permanent change, not just temporary change under an emergency order, but permanent change that actually meets families where they are, meets communities where they are.
2: And getting everyone talking to one another. I mean, I mean, it's not just even here at the state level. You talked about the director and the federal partners. It's a lot of people to get at the table, but I think that's one of the opportunities with COVID is I think everybody kind of had that moment of going, wow, we really need to be talking to each other and working out how we can streamline these things, make them simpler, make them interact with each other and better wrap around and support the families that these programs were intended to serve. And so I just think it's a tremendous uh, time of opportunity for us and, and a tremendous time of growth for our agency.
1: I love that opportunity too, because I mean, there. I mean, COVID did give us just a lot of opportunity to, like you said, to experiment, to try new things, to see will this work, um, and it also forced us into doing some things that maybe we wouldn't have considered because now, now we kind of had to. Um, can you all talk a little bit more too about about some of those opportunities that you found
3: with COVID? Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'd love to talk about it from the child welfare perspective. So we um, we stayed very face-to-face with clients. We had to because our work is very much about safety decision-making in a, in a home. And so um, when uh, COVID first started, our first effort was to try to get people equipped to be able to work outside the office as much as possible because there was no reason to have a bunch of people coming in together in the office. But then sort of my immediate other job was to figure out how do I retain face to face contact with clients and do it safely. Coming from a healthcare perspective, um, you know, over that first few weeks, if you remember, it became pretty clear there was a need for protective equipment to be able to do that in healthcare settings. We knew that was going to be what was going to be required in a social services home setting as well. But getting access to that equipment was not easy. It took some work, quite a bit of work, uh, for us to get to the place where I felt like I could equip. My staff who were going face to face with clients uh, to be safe, um, so that was the wor- the early work. The other thing we did very early on was try to figure out what could we do that wasn't face to face. So Patrick, you were talking about how really even for a couple of decades there have been some moves on the adult and family side to to say well maybe not everything has to be face to face. Some things can be online. So in the child welfare space, what that looked like was understanding where we could we could actually encounter clients or conduct meetings or things like that digitally without having to be face-to-face. So defining certain circumstances require that attention. Other circumstances could be done through video conferencing or things like that. And what we saw was that actually gave us an advantage in some spaces that we didn't imagine it would give us an advantage in. So not only was it initially driven by sort of safety, but it turned out it actually worked better in some circumstances. Um, then a face-to-face meeting would be. So I'll give you some examples. We frequently uh, pull family members together uh, when there's a child welfare-involved case for various kinds of meetings called family team meetings where the child welfare professionals, maybe there might be a therapist or uh, there could be a community provider as well as a family together at a meeting to talk about kind of where are things, what do we still need, et cetera. Well, often families would have to take off work drive to an office somewhere to participate in this meeting. It might last an hour or two and then drive back. Maybe their employer wasn't very flexible with that timing, so they had to make a choice. Do I leave my job or do I leave, not go to the meeting? And if they don't come to the meeting, then we had the perspective, well, how much do you care about your kids? And there became this judgment sometimes that was that's inappropriate because it's really just families trying to juggle so many different things. Now going to the meeting could happen over your lunch break or it can happen over your at the end of your shift but, but but without having to drive and things like that in addition participating in those kind of meetings can happen for family members who may live at a distance so if a support person to you is grandma but she lives 3 counties away she could be on the meeting um if there are parents who don't live together but who are who who really have, both have some responsibility with this child you can now have both parents engaged. And so we we saw um, through the necessity of trying to sort out what must be done face-to-face versus what can we do in a different way and still connect with people. And it's not perfect. We still have, you know, technology challenges, just like you were talking about. Sometimes it's hard for people to sign up online or there's technology challenges. For some families, that's true. But for many families actually using their cell phone or plugging into a, a, you know, Wi-Fi somewhere and getting on a tablet or a laptop actually worked better in their life and it was a better support for them. So we will keep some of those things going forward. I think some of the work now post COVID is really trying to figure out um, how to capitalize on sort of this flexibility when is face-to-face more preferred way of doing things versus when can we use um, digital technology. I would say one of the other things that we're, really thinking about is we've had a tendency to in, to be sort of um, if we have one parent that we can work with to sort of stick with that. And we really need to identify who else is in that child's life. Where are, Where is another parent? Where's the other parent? Where are grandparents, extended family, et cetera. And again, having, having the means to um, engage people who may not have been engaged in that child's life at the moment that we encountered them. Uh, that child and that, and that parent is really critical. We're also, I'm also talking to Child Support Services, which is one of our other um, divisions here in DHS, a lot around how do we work together with them to establish parentage early on to really figure out how to engage dads. I don't think we probably have historically done a great job of engaging dads. A lot of our parent client is a mom. And um, and there are dads out there who would support their kids, whether that's financially or in some other way, if they um, were invited to the table, if we made it possible for them to do that. And um, we know that one of those strategies for reducing child poverty is having multiple adults pouring into the life of that child, both practically from a practical resource standpoint and relationally and things like that. And so I, I think that Coming out of COVID, some of the, the lessons that we learned will cause us to move forward thinking about a broader array of family as as family and as responsible for this child as opposed to just who's the person who could make it to the meeting or who's in the room. And also, again, not judging that person who didn't make it to the meeting because their option was to, you know, to quit their job or come. I mean, that's that's a terrible spot to put people in. So I think we we have some things that we can do differently, that we will do differently we also, um, our staff have to drive all over the state for all kinds of things. And so I, I think we'll, again, we're really uh, trying to narrow down under what condition, whether it's an internal meeting or whether it's with a community partner or whether it's for on, on behalf of a client, under what conditions should we do those face-to-face and under what conditions can we eliminate that travel time. I worry about my staff being on the road as much as they are. And it's not that there's not going to be some part of that that's part of the job, but we drive thousands and thousands of miles. I worry about car wrecks. I worry about the time of night they're out. I worry about all different kinds of things that, that we're uh, trying to figure out how to leverage, um, things that we learned during COVID to do in different ways to reduce risk to our staff as well as to the people we serve.
2: Mm-hmm. On the AFS side, uh, for our customers, we've had a long time. Uh, I've always had a sticking point in TANF where it still required a face-to-face interview, but um, that can be met through a video interview uh, is one of the things that we learned, even though the face-to-face interview requirement was lifted during COVID with the, the COVID restrictions. But now that, that we're faced with coming back into that, we, we wanna start exploring that more and, and how we can integrate technology where we have devices that, uh, you know, if somebody comes in our local office, uh, you know, that we can engage with them there. If they come into a partner site, that has one of our devices that we can engage with that person right then they go ahead and apply they hit the submit button and and we're able to contact them and have a video uh, chat and a video interview with them Uh, you know that's that's kind of the dream down down the road but but it's kind of that whole cycle of saying hey we have to be forward thinking about these things we have to think about what this might look like, you know, it might be a challenge, you know, technologically today, but we see where the technology is going. And we really are, are behind the curve on that, because this is something a lot of companies do already and that we could that we could integrate into our services. Because one of the things that's been challenging about the TANA program is that we have some locations that don't get a, an application every day. And sometimes it's hard to be proficient in a program if you're not working that program every day. And and it would provide us the opportunity to have um, customers who come in and apply at a location that maybe we don't get a lot of TANF applications. We could get them on a video interview with a, a TANF worker in another location that's very experienced, that knows the program well, and that could get that, that family off to a good start in, in moving towards self-sufficiency. And so that's, that's one of the ways that we see uh, a benefit coming out of this experiment where we had to experiment with some of these things like teams and doing an interview. Um, that way with a a customer. Um, But then internally uh, with our staff, I think it really opened our eyes, uh, especially about meetings and trainings and everything else, that there's a lot of opportunities we hadn't explored. And now with this technology, you know, having, I think, the hybrid meeting options, uh, I think is going to be a standard from now on, uh, really with us and and AFS and, and we know that telework is going to remain as core way we do our work, but, um, but where we have those meetings and those, those get-togethers, um, you know, for training and the like, those opportunities to interact with one another, um, always provide an option on there for somebody who maybe has a commitment or has a challenge uh, that, uh, that they can't come in that day. And that be okay, you know. Hopefully, you know it's not every time, and we want to maintain contact with each other and everything like that. But I think that that's really an opportunity that's shown quite clearly during COVID that hey, this technology you can be engaged that way. Yes, especially at that time with being so isolated in the personal life and work life. We were all desperate for, you know, human connection. I mean, I'm just loving being here with, you know, four people in this room, seeing people face to face. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, I mean, I think you naturally get into this line of work because you do like people and you do like to engage with, with uh, people. But we also know, you know, hey, people live, you know, where they prefer to live. I mean, I, I live in Stillwater. And sometimes that, that's a challenge to, to get somewhere for a meeting or something like that. Uh, you know, we have a program manager who lives down in far south southeast Oklahoma. And, and I just see the tools that we've been able to get through Office 365 um, and, and, you know, Dustin and Justin's uh, work on the technology piece really opening up that uh, pool of talent that we have across the state um, where, you know, you don't have to move to Oklahoma City to, you know, work in state office or to advance uh, in your career. We can pick the best and the brightest from wherever they are. If they're in Guymon, if they're in Tulsa, if they're in Hugo, Oklahoma, that we get the best and brightest talent we can into uh, leadership roles within our agency. And I I just think that that's so critical. And I I really am kind of excited... Uh, to think about 20 years from now and and looking at our agency and, and just the fruit that will come from that change and, and being able to have those pathways open to our staff now for advancement and, and really getting the top of the top of the best people we have into these roles.
0: Yeah, I love that. I wanted to say two things. <laughs> Okay, the first thing is, Dr. Deb, specifically, I wanted to just kind of tell you, um, and maybe this is a thanks, but you started, when you first became the Child Welfare Director, you started sending emails out uh, every week, good good Monday morning. I think number 99 was today, <laughs> or yeah. last night.
3: Right, yeah, it, it was Tuesday this <laughs> or week, because I didn't whatever. get to. No, they're supposed to come on Monday, but uh, some days, some weeks it's Tuesday. You all mm-hmm. know, everybody has those weeks, right?
0: <laughs> um. And I know not just for me, and I know you get responses to these emails, but they were, um, like, I really felt connected to a director at a level that I hadn't before. And it's interesting when COVID hit and everything was up in the air and none of us knew whatever we were doing, like, you had established that connection with us. So then when that happened and all the crazy was happening, we were getting the emails about, you know, what was coming next? There was, like, an honest, like, safety feeling I felt like she's got us. She's made the connection. She's a health care professional. I trust her judgment. So I just want to say thank you for all of that, because that helped me through sometimes. I didn't really know you at that point.
3: (laughs) Well, you're welcome. And I I love that. I think, you know, my experience has always been that things I learned that I learned in one season always carried through to the next season. I didn't always exactly know how that was going to how that would play out. Um, But I feel like a lot of times the things that we've learned, they accumulate. They don't just, you know, you don't leave them behind at your last job or your last experience or whatever. And so, you know, when I started in this role in the child welfare director role, certainly my heart, and my intent was to figure out how, again, to how could I best support the systems who were serving children. I had no idea, no imagination that we would, there would be the opportunity to lead a child welfare system. Through a public health crisis, but I think it was an incredibly great opportunity um, because I could understand things like how do you acquire and utilize protective equipment, what is actually needed, what is likely to be the you know next month or six months or or twelve months of a pandemic, even if there's a lot of things that are not understood, and I could sort through all the stuff that was kind of on the news or in the paper or on Facebook and you did and call out like that's crap don't listen to that and you know here's another question that we actually don't know the answer to and there are many questions we still will 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 understand in 5 years but we don't understand today but I could at least help our staff walk through that yeah so um, I'm super was... appreciative of that <laughs> and people and you continue to send the email like and I
0: know, I know you've got a lot of stuff going on, <laughs> but you do it every week and every week you try to connect
1: on a very real level. It's, it's actually
3: beautiful. one of my, so I started that uh, good, the good Monday morning emails on uh, the first uh, week that I was in this role, mostly as an introduction because I, again, I've walked alongside this system for many years and a lot of the interactions I've had, whether it's with the child welfare frontline staff or, or foster parents, et cetera, came through medical settings. Um, so I knew lots of people, but I also knew there were lots of people I didn't know. It's a very big agency. I mean, this agency covers the whole state, it's thousands of people, thousands of partners that are around us. And so I, I wrote the first one as a um, really an introduction of like, here's like pull the curtain back. Like here's who Deb Shropshire is. Like there's the news, pre- the press release and and it's great. The bio is great, but there's actually a real person behind that. And so wanted uh, my staff, my team to sort of know that. Then what happened was then I got a bunch of responses and I was like, oh, I'll do it again next week. And then at some point you're like, oh, now I'm down. (laughs) What do I do? Because uh, because you realize like the um, the sort of relationship, the the um, ability to interact with the team that's come from that. And um, it's funny because I've had weeks where it just didn't happen on Monday. I most of the time I don't write them ahead of time. I write them kind of in real time because I'm trying to capture maybe things that are going on with our department and explain them, maybe resources that are available. I might be capturing, you know, something that we're going through, might be ca- might be capturing something I'm going through. But either way, I write those um they come from kind of wherever I am at the beginning of each week. And so sometimes it's Tuesday before they get out, even though I call them a GMM. Um, but it's it's funny because people will, they'll send me a message if one doesn't come out on a Monday <laughs> and they'll say, hey, I hope I didn't miss it this week. Or, hey, I hope your week's going okay. And I, they are an incredible source of encouragement to me. So I hope they're helpful to our staff. But I'm just going to tell you, there are weeks when I just didn't have it in me to My mom always taught me, like, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say something at all. And there have been weeks where I'm like, I am not inspired this week or I just like I don't have something good to say this week. And then our team, our staff would be encouraging or I would get an email from somebody just at the right time or maybe a text message or something like that. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's why that's why why. we keep getting (laughs) up and showing up. And it inspired often whatever the next message was going to be, and so that has been a very much a two-way uh, relationship. Those mm-hmm. those Good Monday emails, both hopefully they've supported people and given information and guides, but also vision, values like how do some of these things that we're doing connect to where we're trying to go. But also they've been a tremendous uh, personal support for me mm-hmm. um, in this role, which I it's uh, <laughs> I tell my doctor friends. This is harder than medicine, and I believe it. I think the work that child welfare does is so complex. It is so, like, a lot of decisions are very critical decisions in a trajectory. Now, we sort of tend to think about that from a standpoint of, like, life and death situations. Oh, is this kid going to be safe or not? Those are not even what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is decisions we make about how we're going to, what we're going to believe about a family, how we're going to engage with that family. You know, those kinds of decisions set a trajectory for a family that has serious lifelong consequences. And so this is heavy work. It's hard work. And you're under a lot of public scrutiny. We're under a lot of um, always media scrutiny, scrutiny from other departments or from other people, from legislature and things like that. Fortunately, we have many partners in those spaces as well who understand our work. But there's a lot of people who don't. Everybody has an opinion about how I do my job. My own staff has opinions about it. Uh, The community partners have opinions about it, and I get to see that, see and hear about it from everyone. And um, so, it is a really, really difficult role. And like I said, that's why I tell my medical friends: listen, I did the med school thing, the residency thing, the practice thing. This is harder. This child welfare work is harder, but it's incredibly fulfilling work. And it really has been the um, the interactions with our team that have on a regular basis continue to encourage me and that lets me have the energy to hopefully uh, give that back to give that back yeah
1: that's a space where both of you excel just so much is in relationship building and in inspiring your staff to be those connection points in the community and and being those um those relationships that can maybe make a difference in the trajectory of of families and, and children's lives
2: well i think that's been one of the things that's been challenging uh you know for me Personally, I, you know, except for when I got this job, I was always, you know, I was out in the county office is where I, I was working. And so, you know, that energy with our staff, you know, I'll just tell you on a personal level, I really miss that. And and so a big adjustment for me was engaging with our staff through teams and, and just, you know, making a call to a worker somewhere, you know, maybe I knew him, maybe I didn't. And, and, and having a conversation that kind of extended beyond a few minutes, I think was, you know, a, a, quite a big adjustment for me. And I'll just tell you, I'm really looking forward to being able to go out and actually visit people again and, and that sort of thing. And unfortunately, uh, I still, you know, haven't worked out in our offices, I still know some of the people, you know, personally, so I know where they live. So even if they're teleworking, I'll probably don't be surprised if I come say hi. But
3: Occasionally, Uh. I will say occasionally, (laughs) I get on a a virtual call with somebody and then somebody else's head is there and they've got, you know, one of their staff or coworkers (laughs) at their house with them. And I'm like, wait, hey, wait a minute. Whose house are you guys in? So it is pretty funny.
2: You know, I mean, especially at the start of this and and throughout, you know, especially at the start, we had so many changes coming down um, from the feds on new instructions on we change this program protocol, this kind of thing. And I know it was probably for staff like drinking from a, a fire hydrant of just, okay, this piece of program policy is uh, temporarily lifted or we've got this change on student eligibility or on interview on interview requirements, um, you know, insert whatever the latest immediate change is. And, and and you know normally we would write longer emails and kind of do reminders of of uh, our program and policy out to staff, but we knew, man, they were just getting inundated with uh, all kinds of communication from, from every source. And uh, during uh, COVID, that just exploded. And so we really understood that. And so it was kind of like taking advantage of those opportunities that presented themselves elsewhere. And so like one of the things that uh, we'd wanted to do for a long time was to get quarterly supervisor uh, training going again. Um, you know, for budgetary reasons and the like, we'd never been able to do it before. And then uh, during COVID, uh, you know, I think it was one of these conversations I was just having uh, with somebody I knew uh, that was a supervisor out there and said, why can't we do it during, you know, through teams and stuff? And so we started doing that. And I, that's something we're gonna continue because we can do that. You know, it's such a challenge when, you know, you talk about the size uh, of our agency and size of our divisions. Um, we just really can't empty the state of all that talent to come down to one location. Yeah. But, you know, the new technology allows us to have those interactions virtually and to make those connections virtually when when sometimes we wouldn't be able to otherwise. Or if we were able to get them together, it would be so uh, jam-packed and program-heavy, you, you couldn't have kind of some sidebars and some, you know, I think some of my my favorite parts have been just where we're going, okay, we're going to take a 10-minute break and we'll be back. I've started not taking a break during that time just because some of the side conversations that happen on a Teams uh, thing are so uh, wonderfully engaging and so much good uh, ideas and innovations are really come out of those conversations among our staff during those times that uh, I think those are kind of another opportunity that's really presented itself from, from and grown out of COVID as a positive uh, for us for the future. So,
0: mm-hmm. um, I just kind of have one more thing. Uh, one thing I I think about a lot with this agency is the people that work here, what is their why? And I know you guys kind of talked about like how you came into this. What is your continued why? What would you like to say to your staff about keeping their why of being here?
2: Well, you know, my why probably ties back to, to how I was raised and, and my mom's faith and hope that uh, she always told us, you know, we faced a, a challenge or uh, a situation. Uh, her favorite saying was, well, well, tomorrow's another day. And, uh, you know, at the time, that was very frustrating growing up, you know, <laughs> or else she would turn around and go, well, what do you think you should do? That was her other favorite one. You're like, but are you that trying to social work Yes. Me? <laughs> uh, she was at a very early age. and, and as I've grown older and, and I really understood that message and, and what's exciting about it now with uh, Justin and, and the director's new vision and, and the direction with hope and the work we're doing with hope, that was what my mom was saying. Tomorrow is another day. Yes. You have another opportunity. You can go out there and you can make things better. You can set a goal. You can develop a pathway to achieve that goal, and you can make something good come out of whatever the situation is. And and when I think about it for our agency and, and across our division, you talked about, yeah, the work is a lot of the same. That is the core work that is the same across all of our division and within our agency. Tomorrow is a new day, and we have hope for making that day better for us, for our staff, and most importantly, for the families we serve.
3: I feel like that was a mic drop answer. Like what else do you need (laughs) right there? Um, For me, I think uh, I want to see an end to child abuse and neglect. And that's been a, I don't know, I think it points in your life, you come across something about the world that you just see should be fixed or should be different. And you imagine, well, what if uh, that thing was better? And for me, that was child abuse and neglect and encountering the experience of children uh, that were not safe and at the same time recognizing the complexity um, that that gets families to the place where that's their story. The logical place to go is to say, well, why can't we just eliminate this? I mean, it seems like a fixable problem. And maybe that comes somewhat from a public health mindset. When you're in healthcare and you see a disease, you see cancer, your mind goes to how can I get rid of Cancer. Well, um, for me, I ran across the issue of of child maltreatment and said, Well, what can I do to help eliminate that? In the process of trying to understand the answer to the question, or at least my role in it, I have very strongly um, felt that the health of the child welfare system and the staff in the child welfare system is directly connected to the outcomes with the families that we serve. You know, this system will traumatize you because we are first responders and we are running into, in a sense, fires, family fires every single day. That's what we're going to do. Just like a fireman does, just like a police officer does, we are first responders. There will be trauma in that. We have to figure out how within child welfare systems, we don't just do the process work uh, with quality, the actual process of safety and permanency and well-being, but how we actually do the therapeutic side well as well. And that starts with our own um, staff being healthy. It starts with us having a system that in a sense recognizes we're going to send people into traumatic situations and also has the ability to constantly regenerate you and help you heal. Yeah, I was interested for a long time in emergency medicine. um, And actually, if I hadn't run into this issue of sort of (laughs) child welfare, I'd probably be an ER doctor um because i love dr medicine you know in the emergency room people you can see sort of the brokenness and the bleeding and the wounds <laughs> in child welfare work you can't always see it with your eyes but it's still there still emergency work right it's just an, it just looks a little different but physicians who work in those kind of emergency spaces just like law enforcement and others often burn out because the systems are not set up to regenerate you we have to have a child welfare system that Can um, constantly be healing, self-healing, regenerating for our staff, um, so that um, they are healthy to continue to go into those um, kind of into those situations and and to intervene. Um, I've been able to do that in my own life. Like I'm still standing. A lot of people who work in this field aren't twenty years in, twenty five years in, still showing up. And um, my desire is to build that for our team um, because I think if I can equip our staff to be healthy, to be knowledgeable, to be skilled, to have vision for what we're trying to do, that actually that's what will drive outcomes. And that ultimately those outcomes result in a reduction in child abuse and neglect, uh, not only in this generation, but it drives the next generation to have a different outcome as well. And so that's what actually kind of gets me up in the morning. In this role, I said there, you know, there's a lot of people who have opinions about what child welfare should be. I'm a little bit uh, sick and tired of it at the moment because there's all these people nationally, locally, et cetera, who talk about child welfare reform and here's what child welfare should look like. And I frequently say to them, some of whom are my fellow pediatricians, you need to sit down. Because you don't actually know, like you don't get to say from the outside, here's what child welfare be- should should be. Not that I don't value some of those perspectives, but until you have been in this, um, you don't actually understand what this work is. And so, uh, anyway, I don't know where I was going. I kind of lost my train of thought. I like well, wherever you are going just, with it. I, I, I like exactly
2: <laughs> where you were going because, yeah. you know, I've had, that, I've had people, you know, because I work at DHS, you know, they'll... They'll come up and start talking about, well, child welfare should be this way. Or it should mm-hmm. do this kind of thing. And, and I was right you know, with our agency. There's so many opportunities. There's such a need for people to do this work. I often tell them, mm-hmm. I say, you know, well, hey, we're hiring. We need people mm-hmm. that want to do yeah. this work in child welfare. Come come, be part of that uh, solution and and see what it's like firsthand. Yeah. Because it, it's one thing to look at a system from outside. It's another thing to actually go in and be part of trying to make that system better, and and I think that that that's one of the things that we're fortunate about that that we get renewed as an agency because we have we continue to have people who are willing to step up in the community and say yes I want to do that kind of work and I'm going to come there and I'm going to do my best at that and I'm going to try to make the system better. Um, we talked about my experience in child welfare and it's so much better. You know, practice wise and policy wise and everything else than then when I worked in it, 30, I guess coming up on 30 years, 25, 30 years, somewhere in there. Yeah. But, um, you know, it is a progress thing. And lots of times people think of our programs and our systems as being static and they're far from it. We have constant changes and always trying to improve and make things better. And I think that that's probably one of the biggest eye opening things for people who come to work with us is. Oh, I thought this was just the same as it's always been, or everything, and 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 that's really a misconception out there. Mm-hmm. We we are constantly changing our practice. We're always trying to find uh, some way to do things better and and to have better outcomes from our families. And and I think you you illustrate that personally, uh, Deb. And I just that's mm-hmm. why i so I've been so excited to have you here and to get to work with you because you do come at it going, how can we improve this? How can we make this better? And that's so important in our
3: it is important. And I think, um, let me go back to this idea that there's all these people who look at the child welfare system and say, well, it should be like this. And there's opinions. And it's hard unless you've been, unless you're in it to really fully understand the challenges the child welfare system faces. But I will tell you, as much as, some, as I'm sometimes rubbing against those external opinions uh, of child welfare, I'm not unaware that sometimes that's what we do to families. That we go to a family and say, well, you should look like this or you should behave like this or you should respond like this. And some of the judgment, honestly, that we experience as a child welfare system from other folks, it's sort of like we, we're going to have to take the, the plank out of our own eye, so to speak, uh, before we can push back too much against that because we do the same thing. And all of that is trauma. All of that is comes out of a place of unhealth, unhealthy relationships, unhealthy expectations, et cetera and so i I really think my desire uh and what gets me continue continues to wake me up in the morning and get me coming into work really is a desire to serve our staff so that we can serve the people that we are um positioned to serve from a perspective of not I know it's best for you but how can I help you set your own goals? How can I help you um, as a family? I, I don't think most people wake up in the morning uh, wanting to put their kids in danger. They don't. It just happens because of, of sort of life circumstances. How can we come alongside a parent who has some natural ability to be a parent and strengthen that in such a way um, that um, we're honoring to those parents? And in the same way, my, my desire would be to see our community partners and others recognize that about us as well, so I think the sometimes the um the criticism we face we get we dish some of that criticism out, and if we can shift that, we will see radically different outcomes in the families that we serve as well as in the relationships we have in our community. so when we've gotten to that place, then I'll feel like i've then I'm feel like I'm done <laughs> until then, I' have a long list of things to get up in the morning for.
2: That's a mic drop moment That was a good one. You had me cheered on. There we go. Thank
3: you.
1: Do you all have any parting words before we say goodbye?
2: I I just want to say thank you to our staff uh, throughout both divisions uh, of coming here, choosing to work here at DHS, choosing to provide hope to those we serve and to each other. And thank you for staying here and trying to make things better and trying to make a change and make a difference uh, for the future for our communities and our families across the state of Oklahoma.
3: Yeah, I would totally echo that. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys.
0: Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Waypoint, where we're on this journey together. To learn more about the work of Child Welfare Services or Adult and Family Services, visit their pages on our website at okdhs.org. To learn more about how you can support your community through fostering, visit okfosters.org. To apply for SNAP, childcare subsidy, or any other services provided by Adult and Family Services, visit okdhslive.org. We hope you'll continue to join us on this podcast where we'll explore topics that affect and uplift Oklahomans. Please like this episode and don't forget to subscribe so you're notified when we release each new episode.